Welcome back to the program. Long before Steve Jobs and Johnny Eyes bridged the divide between design and technology, before Target began selling Michael Graves' tea kettles, Charles and Ray Eames made the connection between design and public perception. They created designs for furniture, architecture, toys, and film. And in so doing, they set the stage for much of the way that we view our world today. They were visionaries who were deeply grounded in history, who understood that modern was also rooted in the classic. My guest today, Dan Ostroff, is a world authority on Charles and Ray Eames. He's the author of numerous books about them. He's consulted for the Eames Office, the Museum of California Design, Herman Miller, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and others. He also produces feature films, television, and documentaries. It is my pleasure to welcome Dan Ostroff here to talk about an Eames anthology. Articles, film scripts, interviews, letters, notes, and speeches. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. First of all, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the Eames in the first place and really your your fascination with them that led to this this longtime commitment to their work. It actually uh, uh, began uh, with something uh, simple. Uh, I um, uh, Furnishing an office, um, I opened uh, a, my own uh, Hollywood agency in 1987, the, the Daniel Ostroff Agency, to represent screenwriters, directors, and uh, books uh, to film. And when I opened my office, an artist friend visited and noticed that I had rented furniture. And he said, you know, you're, you're in a high-profile industry. You can't uh, have rented furniture. And I said, well, what should I have? And he said, why buy furniture that depreciates in value? And I said, well, can you be a little more specific? And he showed me a photograph of a vintage Eames desk that was for sale. And I bought that desk. And pretty soon... Instead of furnishing my office, I was curating a furniture collection. And over time, it was, uh, uh, I, I looked at a, a, a great variety of, uh, of periods and design, and I zeroed in. Uh, the one that, for which I had the greatest affinity was uh, post war design. And within that uh, field, designed since 1946, the Eames designs appealed to me the most. The next step was reading about the design. And when I, uh, I looked for primary source material, what the designers themselves had to say about uh, their work and why they did certain things, and the Eames words resonated uh, the most with me. In fact, when I read what Charles and Ray said about design, I was soon incorporating their ideas into my uh, Hollywood uh, practice and over time at uh, the Daniel Ostroff Agency, I gave every client what I called the Eames talk uh, because there were things that Charles and Ray said about design that I felt had uh, real application to people working in, in Hollywood. And now that I've done this book, I think that their ideas have applications for uh, many, many different uh, disciplines. Talk a little bit about what those fundamental ideas were. What were those things that were part of, as you say, the Eames talk? Well, one thing that creative people sometimes struggle with is uh, um, their personal interests as opposed to what they can make a living doing. 
and uh, uh, half of the Eames talk that I would give to these uh, Hollywood writers and directors consisted of sharing with them uh, Charles and Ray's design process uh, uh, diagram. And they used a, um, uh, a Venn diagram to show a way forward with intersecting circles. One circle is all of the things of personal interest to the designer. Another circle would be uh, all the things for which there's a client who wants to pay you. And then the next circle, and this was really, really uh, uh, crucial and in a way uh, quite uh, dis distinctive about Charles and Ray, all of the things that would benefit society as a whole. And they said that you can work comfortably where all three circles intersect. So specifically in Hollywood, I would point out to um, uh, the writers, it's not that you have to work on things that you don't like. It's that you have to zero in on those things that you like, but that there's also a uh, 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 company uh, willing to finance at, at, at any given point in time. And in terms of the, the, the uh, uh, society as a whole, um, I actually think that um, movies are, uh, the most successful movies often have lessons in them that uh, do embody uh, some of our best uh, uh, values as a society. Uh, Hollywood executives wouldn't like to admit that, but you know, if you look at movies like... Uh, uh, Star Wars and Avatar, um, there is a, uh, a morality to the message that uh, is very uh, uh, positive and, um, uh, and good. One of the interesting things about this, and I'm sure you, you've thought about this a lot, is the way that technology today has, in some ways, incorporated some of these ideas. Steve Jobs, perhaps being the penultimate example, in the way he viewed design as an important element of, of any kind of product. Well, that's interesting because um, uh, the Eames approach uh, and the Jobs approach are... Um, there, there are some ways in which there's an overlap and other ways in which they're different. I, I really um, found, uh, well, first, this is a general observation that I think the Jobs was focused on the visual, and he was a person with very good taste. And in fact, he, he had a background uh, uh, that Charles and Ray recommended for everyone, which was when he was very young, his father showed him what what good is uh -huh. uh, in terms of when you're doing a job, you even care about the details that you don't see. Uh, th this came through very uh, clearly in the Walter Isaacson biography. Um, uh, but Charles and Ray took that idea to an even deeper level. What they focused on was uh, what something is must do. Um, and they felt there's there's a great uh, uh, line in the book um, in a uh, report to MIT. Ch Charles said, and I'm paraphrasing, that the uh, uh, things that make up for uh, that make for the most functional environment uh, are the same things that make for a most beautiful environment, unless you have an extremely brutal view of function. 
and they guarded themselves against uh, uh, putting things into their buildings or into their designs that were purely there for eye appeal or visual appeal. And, and I think that it's much more um, uh, likely that when you take that approach that you make things that are ultimately uh, timeless. When you see an Eames rocking chair in 2015, it doesn't register as an uh, artifact of the 1950s. Um, and it's because every aspect of it uh, is the way it is because it relates to some aspect of uh, uh, functionality. Uh, the curve of the arm, um, that it uh, has a great strength-weight ratio, uh, that the base does what a base should do, that the uh, uh, seat and arms are to hold the user. They really uh, looked at every single part um, in terms of what it must do. And it's why in the book I started out with this uh, uh, quote. I, I found this uh, um, interview that uh, that Charles and Ray did with a TV station in San Francisco in 1953. Uh, they were invited to be on this uh, show that San Francisco Museum of Modern Art had organized, and they were the guests for one hour. And the, the uh, producer of the show said, one of the things we're going to ask you when you're on the show is to talk about your revolutionary molded plywood chair. And what Charles and Ray did was they made a little documentary that they uh, that uh, that was broadcast as part of the show, and the first line of that documentary that they wrote is, "The problem of designing anything is, in a sense, the problem of designing a tool, and as in designing a tool, it is usually wise to have a pretty clear idea of what you want the thing to do, the need it is to fill, its particular objective." And they focused on that really, really uh, carefully. Um, and that's very different than looking at something in terms of its uh, eye appeal or its, uh, uh, its visual um, elements. And yet, to and, what degree were they aware of those visual elements and eye appeal? Because certainly so much of what they did had those elements. Well, see, I think that's the great uh, uh, lesson. Um, there were many designers who wrote things and who uh, created a body of work that somewhat uh, that reflects some of their ideas, but not all of their ideas. With the Eames work, I think there's a complete consistency between what they said they were doing and and what they were doing. You don't see um, uh, uh, features on an Eames chair that uh, are purely. Uh, uh, decorative, except perhaps the color of the chair. But they would say that that relates to somewhat abstract aspects of, uh, of, of functionality, not purely the, uh, uh, the visual. There's an interview in the book from a, uh, where a, a curator was doing a show called The Design Process of Herman Miller at the uh, Walker Art Center in Minnesota, and she tried to pin Charles and Ray down and admit to a visual through line in their work, and they said there isn't a visual through line. We were really 
uh, disciplined about this whole idea, like in that quote, what must it do? Well, there, there are, there's a, there's a visual vocabulary, but it doesn't stem in Eames work, but it doesn't come out of, uh, out of the visual. It comes out of principles. For example, one of their principles, and I think this accounts for a lot of uh, the appearance of Beam's objects, was that we should never conceal a connection. So whether you're looking at their um, uh, kiosk that they built for the New York World's Fair or looking at one of their chairs, uh, without too much difficulty, you can see how the thing is put together and how you might take it apart if you need to repair a part or replace a part. So when you are disciplined uh, to not conceal uh, connections, you do start to have a consistent um, uh, uh, through line because you'll see, and you see that sometimes in the details of their architecture. Uh, Charles worked with. Uh, Arrow and Eliel Saarinen on the um, a church in Columbus, Indiana, and in the hallways of the church, there's a um, a lattice work of wood that uh, provides a uh, uh, kind of a, a a walkway down one particular corridor, and even in affixing the uh, the wood dowels that make up for this uh, wall covering. Uh, Charles left the sc- you know the screws exposed, and so there, that was a, um, a philosophic preference that they had that results in a uh, um, a certain luck. Also, attending to um, the uh, uh, durability of things um, and the uh, strength weight ratio that that's, that gives you some form of a consistency. But uh, a really, I hope this is a vivid example. Mm-hmm. There are Eames dining tables and there are Eames dining chairs. They don't match because the Eames idea it was, what must a table do? Well, the things that make up for the best possible table aren't necessarily what make for the best possible chair. Chairs do one thing, tables do something else. But even though the base of an Eames table doesn't match the base of an Eames chair. There's a uh, uh, a harmony that comes from this attention to um, practical and and functional details. But it's not the harmony that a typical designer gives you, where he decides that the table base and the chair base should uh, should uh, should match. In that sense, talk about how they viewed themselves. Did they view themselves as architects, as designers, as builders, given that, that the functionality was, was the essential element? How did they see, what did they see their job as? They were most uh, comfortable uh, uh, saying that, that they were uh, architects. Uh, Charles actually was a practicing architect before he met Ray. He... Um, attended the University of Washington School of Architecture uh, for two years and uh, in 1930 opened his own architecture uh, practice. And between 1930 and 1939, Charles did five houses in St. Louis, 
and two churches in uh, Arkansas, which are quite beautiful. And and actually, if you look at the Eames uh, churches, um, you you see that Charles wasn't exaggerating when he said he didn't have a visual style. Um, he did these churches in the uh, um, Romanesque uh, tradition because these churches in Arkansas didn't have much money, and um, in the Romanesque uh, uh, era, um, you had uh, a pretty economic uh, building method, and it also did something else, which was it came out of a tradition that led to uh, um, uh, really nice communal spaces, uh, recently, the National Park Service uh, uh, declared one of the two uh, Eames, Arkansas churches a, um, uh, a, a historic landmark. And what I really liked about the uh, articles in the Arkansas papers about this event w- was that they didn't talk about, the parishioners didn't talk about what a pretty church we had. They talked about how nice it was to uh, be inside and that it felt very homey and very comfortable and it gave them a good sense of community. And, and I'm sure that that's what Charles was going for. He wasn't trying to create a space that was, uh, uh, God related, but Mm -hmm. actually that was a very, uh, human related space. And I, I note in my introduction that one shouldn't think of Charles and Ray as functionalists because they, uh, well, they said it themselves. Charles said, I'm thinking of function in terms of ultimate service to the person who uses something that I design. So it, was, it really comes back to people and trying to think of every single thing that would be meaningful to, to Jeff or Dan or anyone going into one of their buildings or using one of their uh, uh, pieces of furniture. Were there architects or designers or anyone else that were powerful influences for them? It was exciting in doing this book to discover uh, uh, the the answer to that question. In uh, uh, 1928, uh, uh, on the um, honeymoon with his uh, uh, first wife, Charles was married... uh, uh, and divorced before he met Ray, uh, they went. He and his wife went to uh, Europe, and he visited the Weissenhof estate in Stuttgart, which was built in 1927, and it was a showcase of what uh, became known as the international style of modern architecture. And he saw buildings by Corbusier, by uh, Mies van der Rohe, uh, Walter Gropius, and others, and. In fact, in the book, at some point, um, in one interview, uh, Charles was asked if he was influenced by the Bauhaus, and he said uh, he was not. Um, and I, I and I understand that because the Bauhaus was very much about a visual vocabulary, whereas the Weissenhof estate was um, providing a lot of good, affordable housing for for the masses. And Charles was always. And 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 really were very people oriented, and the d- democratic uh, ideals of the Weissenhof estate uh, certainly uh, um, 
uh, is are embodied in, in the later Eames work, and that's what turned him around, uh, see, seeing that. And in fact, um, uh, when they first moved to Los Angeles, uh, uh, which they did when they got married in 1941, they lived in a uh, Richard Neutra apartment building uh, on uh, Strathmore. And Neutra was also from that uh, tradition, the, the inter- international style. I, I always find it a little bit um, uh, troubling that the international style has the word style in it. Because when you when you look at buildings that were built in in, in that um, uh, tradition, there's just kind of an inherent goodness to it. And in fact, one of the leading uh, 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 lights of that school was somebody that uh, Charles and Ray revered, Mies van der Rohe. And Mies van der Rohe also didn't talk about the visual. Um, in in a speech, uh, Charles quoted Mies van der Rohe, and he said. All of us should have this uh, Mies van der Rohe quote tattooed to our chests. And the quote was, I don't want to be interesting. I want to be good. What did they think of where style and design was moving in their later years towards much more emphasis on just style and design and, and even a sense of disposability? I, ironically, they were... Um, very, very excited about the potentiality of computers. Um, in fact, they were um, uh, completely uh, energized by computers, such that they did a um, uh, they made a film uh, about uh, computers uh, called a, a computer glossary. They did a exhibition in the late 1960s uh, called a computer perspective where they did a, a history of computers. And um, uh, probably the, uh, um, one of the greatest things they did for computers was the 1964 uh, New York uh, World's Fair IBM Pavilion, where they, sh- they made a 10-minute uh, film that you watched on 21 screens called uh, Think, and it was all about... Uh, the boons that computers would bring to people. And they, they worked very hard to humanize computers for, uh, uh, for the public. And specifically um, with regard to design and uh, architecture, they expressed uh, this uh, uh, optimistic hope that architects and designers would embrace computers not to make wacky shapes, which unfortunately is what computers are being used for today, um, but rather to uh, study factor upon factor upon factor upon factor. As Charles said, you'd have to be a fool to use less information rather than more. To make modern architecture and modern design even more functional in human terms. Um, to, you know, to look at uh, existing buildings and existing designs. You could use computers to collect uh, data points and overlap data points and come up with uh, some really, really uh, uh, functional uh, uh, things. In, in a way, they were anticipating that um, or hoping that designers and architects would use data 
the way marketers are using data. You know, now, you know, I, the latest issue of Time Magazine had that whole thing about how big data is being used to help employers uh, pick those employees that are most likely to fit into their uh, corporate culture and uh, and be the best kinds of employees. Well, that uh, Charles and Ray anticipated the, an era in which uh, computers could uh, analyze data in such a way that our buildings would be uh, uh, would be more functional on a on a human uh, basis. In many ways, it's so interesting because that data driven approach is at least in the context of today, and I suppose even to some at the time, antithetical to the idea of kind of an auteur theory of design, which we often think of today. Oh, well, there's, you're absolutely right. Um, there was a uh, phrase which they, which they would write with hyphens, how it should be ness. That the uh, that's what they strove for with their buildings and with their uh, and and with their furniture. And let's also not overlook the fact that they left behind a rich legacy of films and exhibitions that they curated. In terms of how it should be, Ness, I um, was struck one day by uh, something that Charles and Ray said. So I I did a little bit of research into the claw hammer. And what I discovered was that the claw hammer that we buy today at Home Depot it, uh, doesn't look any different than the claw hammer that, that Julius Caesar's carpenters would have used. So the claw hammer is an example of how it should be ness. And that's, that's the ideal to which Charles and Ray uh, strove with their designs. And and how it should be ness is it's a really interesting um, thing because you, when when you're really really diligent at applying yourself to that, you um, uh, you you attend to things like how much space does it take up in a room? You know, I'm, I, I imagine that you know in the maybe a thousand years before Roman times, claw hammers had some uh, odd features, and maybe they were really bulky and. They didn't fit in the hand too well, but by the time the Romans got around, the, claw, the, the wood for a claw hammer was shaped in such a way that it, it fairly universally is comfortable to pretty much anybody who picks it up, and that the uh, claw part fits most nails, and that the, uh, the, the dimensions of the hammering edge of the hammer uh, uh, also is just right. And and that's what Charles and Ray did with their uh, with their furniture. They, it's uh, compact. It's got a great strength weight ratio. Um, if you bump into it uh, uh, as you're walking by it, it has radius edges so you don't get a bruise. Um, so it, it, it was exactly that. It's like um, how how it should be as opposed to. Uh, something idiosyncratic. And in terms of idiosyncratic design, which unfortunately dominates uh, contemporary architecture and, and some contemporary design, uh, Charles said, to the extent uh, an architecture designer has a uh, style, is the extent to which he hasn't solved the problem. 
So really, their ultimate test was timelessness, I suppose, the hammer being a great example. Yeah. Yeah, and the, 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 they usually talked in terms of the of, they talked in terms of the hand axe. Um, it, there's a wonderful one of the reasons that I wanted to do this book was because they were really good with uh, one-liners and aphorisms such as "take your pleasure seriously," um, and and the one that I just quoted: "to the extent you have a style is the extent to which you haven't solved the problem." I wanted people to uh, experience the uh, uh, the entire uh, uh, thought. Um, this was this was in the f- very first uh, uh, essay in the book, something that Charles wrote in 1941. In the airplane, one feels strongly the appropriateness of its streamed lines, and they seem healthy and good. This effect is very different from that of the streamlined vacuum cleaner or inkwell where the designer has fallen into a habit of form and has the mistaken idea that it would be good to streamline everything. That's great. And and finally, talk about their work in, with film and, and how that fit into this overall equation that we've been talking about. They certainly had a uh, uh, passion uh, for um, both uh, education and uh uh, and communication. Uh, I think, you know, there, there is this uh, rare book dealer um, I know who um, had a large group of Ray Eames handwritten letters for sale. And he said this, uh, he said that she was fizzing with creativity. I think both of them were fizzing with ideas. And, and in, along with that, was this uh, really uh, strong, um, idealistic, and and moral sense? So their ideas were about uh, life and living and the world around us. And when they had observations about how to improve uh, things, um, they wanted to share them. Uh, when uh, Charles actually didn't seek out a, uh, a job as a teacher, but Eliel Saarinen, uh, who ran the he was a great architect, um, who ran the Cranbrook Academy, uh, saw this in Charles. He first recruited Charles in 1938 to come uh, to the Cranbrook Academy to study. And, uh, and Charles t- said that he took the uh, offer with the... Uh, Proviso that he could spend the first year um, reading and learning. As Charles said, until I got to Cranbrook, I didn't know what a concept was. <laughs> and uh, he had never really had an opportunity to uh, just to immerse himself in, uh, a self, in a program of self-education. Well, in year two at Cranbrook, Eliel said, you're going to be the head of my industrial arts uh, uh, department and uh, uh, here this this guy who was thrown out of college in his second year of college was teaching at the top uh, design academy the academy that not only produced uh, 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 Aero Saarinen but also uh, Florence Knoll um, Harry Weiss who did the Washington DC metro system it was a really uh, the time that Charles was teaching there 
uh, produced a golden uh, uh, age of uh, of designers. Later on, with Charles and Ray, they they taught uh, architecture 101 at UC Berkeley in 1953, and um, throughout their life. Um, uh, reached out to, to students and the universities to share uh, ideas. And, uh, and their, their films are, uh, we'd call them educational films. That term didn't really exist back then. But they didn't use films to tell stories. They used film as a really effective way to get ideas across. And, and in fact, that's how Charles uh, uh, described them. And they also applied themselves uh, assiduously to um, the best forms of communication uh, and the best methods of communication. One of their very first films was uh, called A Communications Primer. And they made that because they looked around to see if there was any uh, source that architecture, architects and designers could turn to to learn um, uh uh, the best techniques of communicating ideas, and there wasn't one, so they decided to make one. Daniel Ostroff, the book is an Eames anthology. It's just out from Yale University Press. Dan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.